or six times speaking here, so it's good to be back. Um, usually I have five kids, I live in San Francisco, and usually I get to bring one of my kids, and it's usually my 10-year-old daughter, and she loves coming here because she gets to play with the bunnies when David brings them. And so um, when I told her I was going to be here, she was really upset because she's sick today, and so she couldn't come. And so she, uh, but I brought my two teenagers, which is a different kind of blessing because uh, I don't know if you've been around teenagers, but sometimes they're really honest. So when I was driving here, they were telling me about how I sound when I preach and filling me with all kinds of uh, insecurities and things. And so um, just know I'll get good feedback after it. So you don't have to share it with me. They'll let me know anything I could have done better on the drive home. Uh, but genuinely, I love coming here. Thanks for having me again. So I'd, I'd like to do something maybe a little bit uh, unique right now. Um, I want everyone to close their eyes for a minute. And I want you to think about a season in which you faced hardship or difficulty or suffering, a season in which you might have felt tempted to doubt the goodness of God or the existence of God or uh, even wonder if he cares. Uh, That might be next to a hospital bed. That might be a season in which you received bad news. That might be a present season. It might be a recent season. It might be something you have to think back in the past. I want you to just think about how you felt during that time, how you thought, how you prayed, or how you didn't pray. And I want you to open your eyes. We're going to be looking at Psalm 66, a psalm that's specifically written for people who are in the midst of trial or hardship, difficulty, or suffering. But before we get into Psalm 66, which you're welcome to open up to, that's really the only text we're going to be in for most of the day. Um... I want to pray. So let's pray. Father God, we are grateful to come to church today, to come to worship, to meet one another, to hear from your word. And God, I know we all come here uh, different level, uh, needy, but with different levels of awareness about our need. And so God, I pray that you would make us aware of our need for you, aware of our need for grace, aware of our need for truth, And God, I pray specifically for those of us who are facing hardship, difficulty, suffering, who are close to those who are facing that. God, I pray that you would encourage them this morning and give them tools to stand up in the middle of hardship with grace and uh, with endurance. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So again, Psalm 66, that's where we are. It's a psalm about hardship, facing difficulty, suffering. And like all of the psalms, they invite us into the psalmist's experience to kind of understand the psalmist's own story and their point of view, and then to join in with them, to sing their experience as our own. Uh, The psalms, I really do love them. They're a great way to, uh, they're great if you're facing a hardship. They're a great thing to know when you face difficult circumstances, Uh, just like today's psalm, which is about learning to face hardship and trials. And so today, if you are facing hardship, you're facing trials or suffering, if you are tired, if you feel broken, this psalm, this song is for you. The very opening says that it's a song. If you aren't going through a hard time, maybe you know someone who is, who could use this truth. Um, Maybe this is something you could share with someone else. Or or maybe, like all of us, I think we know that if we're not in the middle of a hard circumstance, it's coming somewhat soon. And so you might need this psalm for the future. Uh, Very little is told us about the context of Psalm 66. We don't know the specific author. Uh, Some people have wondered if it was David. Others have wondered if it was King Hezekiah, the 13th king of Judah. Uh, We don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't say. Uh, We don't know the historical context in what's written. Sometimes the Psalms give us a little blurb about this song was written at this point. 
Uh, the only thing we know is that it was written for a choir master and that it's a song. It was designed to be sung by others. And like much of Hebrew poetry and the Psalms, the, 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 the crucial point, the key point of the Psalm is in the very middle. Okay, I want to read this middle section to start, and it's the catalyst for why the Psalm was written. This is Psalm 66, verses 10 through 12. It's kind of the middle section. It says this, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. The author of this psalm stands on the other side of a series of trials and hardship that they have endured and they have persevered. The psalmist has gone through some kind of difficulty, some kind of pain, and they report back to us not only their experience of that suffering, but also some lessons that they've learned, some ways that we too might learn how to respond and endure in our own times of trial and hardship. And I should say from the beginning uh, on the outset that there's nothing more frustrating and annoying uh, than, and more even hurtful sometimes than hearing kind of glib, simplistic answers when you're in the middle of going through something serious, right? When you are hurting, uh, you don't want to hear someone say, like, oh, it's all going to be okay. You know, God's got a plan. You know, focus on the positive. Thoughts and prayers are with you. Uh, especially from someone that we don't feel like understands or we don't feel like someone who, uh, we don't feel that they have any idea that the pain or difficulty we're experiencing so even if we sort of cognitively might be like, yeah, I, I, that's true, I, I want to think about God has a plan, uh, even, or even if we know that the person means well, when we are hurting, we don't want to hear those kinds of answers. At least I don't. We want to shout, you don't understand, you have no idea what I'm going through, you have no idea what I'm feeling right now. But if we hear someone share or say, you know, I remember when my husband died, I remember when I had another miscarriage, I remember when I lost my job, when I was assaulted, when I found out I was sick. When we hear something like that, it's something changes in how we hear a person. When someone listens and shares from their own experience, we start to believe that there might be a chance that they understand. And the psalmist is doing that for us today. While the issues might be different, encountering someone who has stood in our shoes or in shoes like ours, someone who has faced a serious trial and a difficulty, it opens our heart. It reminds us that we aren't alone. When we hear that, we're reminded there are others who have journeyed on this path of suffering before. Uh, I can remember personally for my wife, Rachel, and I, uh, one of our most serious trials a couple years into our marriage, we were missionaries in Bangkok, Thailand, and uh, my wife started having serious seizures. And we had very young children at the time, uh, and she had what they used to call a grandma seizure, where she would have a seizure and then be unconscious, and we had no idea what was causing these seizures. She'd never had the thing before. And usually, when that happens for an adult, it's pretty bad news. It's a brain tumor, it's a neurological disease. And so we've begun this myriad of tests, um, this time in which, you know, we were going to doctors for CAT scans and MRIs and all kinds of tests, and doctors trying to figure out what was going on. And at the time, we were just very, very raw emotionally. Uh, we didn't want simple answers. And I can remember very personally and very, um, very specifically being mad at God. Like, God, how could you do this? Uh, looking back, I can feel a bit of entitlement, but I was like, I'm a missionary. We're in Thailand. Like, how, are, how is my wife getting sick in the middle of all this? And, and I was frustrated. I was, I, was, I was really, really frustrated. And at the time, I was so thankful that I had people in my life who had faced serious challenges as well. Uh, a, a mentor of mine had a son who had died in a car accident who helped me give me perspective. 
another friend of mine had a spouse that had MS for a decade. And these two men were able to just sort of share out of their own experience how they endured in these much more challenging seasons. And they showed me in their lives that I, that, that I could look at them and I could be encouraged. That they were still faithful to God even after facing crushing difficulties and trials. And so what I want to offer is that the psalmist is playing this role for us in this psalm, Psalm 66 today. The author speaks to us out of the overflow of their own experience of difficulty. The psalmist has faced serious trials. Uh, The situation that they're dealing with is described as a crushing burden. That's verse 11. They've gone through fire, verse 12. And while the specifics aren't really given, this is a song written by someone familiar with pain. And yet again, they're on the other side of that. The section ends with the psalmist saying, verse 12, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. The counsel given from this psalm is from someone who has endured under great trials and at the same time speaks wisdom on the other side and they've remained faithful to God. And so the psalmist is able to emphasize they've been through hardships, but they're also able to provide counsel for how we can endure in our own times of hardship. And so this morning, I want to look at this psalm and draw some encouragement. I want to think of five things or look at five things, some of which are going to feel counterintuitive that this psalm calls us to do when we face trials and hardship. Okay, so five things we're called to do from Psalm 66 when we face trials and hardship. And the first one is the one that's hardest for me. Number one, sing. Sing. This, after all, is a song. The, psalm is, the psalmist is clear that one of the ways that we can be strengthened in our time of difficulty is to sing and to sing joyfully. Let me read verses one through four. It says this, Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Three times we're told to sing. Told to shout and joy and say aloud, how awesome are your deeds. But I know that when you're in the middle of something difficult, singing for joy might seem like living in denial. It might feel like ignoring or repressing your true feelings. And I want to be really clear that I don't think the Psalms teach us to do that, okay? Uh, There are actually a number of very honest Psalms that show the Psalms crying out to God in despair or in anger. The Bible is like this very refreshing book um, where people are are not fake. Uh, And particularly in the Psalms, they cry out to God in anger, and and it's really, really honest. And, And I can remember when Rachel and I, we were going through that season I just talked about, middle of trying to figure out what was causing her seizures, I was so mad at God uh, in my prayers that I cursed at him, Um, like real curse words, like not church curse words, like the kind we shouldn't say because we're recording, you know. Um, I was furious with God, and I and I told him, and but it's not it's not all I told him, and and there was a point that I needed to kind of stop allowing my feelings to control me, that I needed to acknowledge my feelings, but not to allow them to dictate everything I thought about reality. Because feelings, as we know, aren't always reliable. They're they're one indicator that we have. They tell us something, but they don't tell us everything. And underneath my feelings, as I began to think about them, the question was really, is God good? Is God good even in the midst of my trial? This is a question the Bible thinks about a lot. It's a question of the book of Job. God allows Satan to take everything away from Job, his family, his health, his possessions. And Job is extremely honest with God about how he feels but he refuses to curse and give up hope in God. He was more honorable than me. Even when his circumstances seem to warrant it, when he feels abandoned and betrayed by God, Job does not curse God. This psalm teaches us that sometimes we need to sing something that we don't yet 
or we don't presently feel because we believe that it's true. This isn't a denial of the reality of our actual feelings, but a refusal to be governed by our feelings alone. Does that make sense? I want to say it really carefully, that it's not a denial of the reality of our actual feelings, but a refusal to be governed by our feelings alone. This is how slaves in America sung spiritual songs of hope, right? In the midst of brutal, enduring injustice. They were not governed just by their feelings or their circumstances. No, they sung prophetically songs of hope, enduring songs of hope. Gospel music was born. And so Psalm 66 teaches us that when we face trials and hardships, we too need to sing. So number one, sing. Second thing we need to remember when we face trials, thing we do when we face trials and hardships is number two, remember. Remember. Verses five through nine, look at those. Verse five begins a section in which the psalmist remembers how God acted in relationship to the people of Israel. I'm gonna read this to you. This is verse five through nine. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him, who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. Uh, It's been noted by various commentators that Psalm uh, 66, it follows a unique pattern. The psalm starts out with this really broad audience and it becomes more specific. So you have this thing about the nations and the world and then, or the, or the world and the universal and then the national and then it goes to the individual. Uh, at first, the psalmist addresses the world saying phrases like verse one, shout for joy to God all the earth. Or verse four, all the earth worships you. Verse five, uh, he is awesome in his deeds toward the children of men. That phrase children of men essentially means humankind, mankind. The author begins with the whole world in mind reminding the reader or the singer that God is the God of the whole world. The psalm begins by kind of broadening our vision, reminding us, bringing our eyes up, and that, that remembering that God is not just our personal deity. He's not just the God of our people or our country, but he's actually the God of all people, the God of every culture throughout all of history. He cares about everyone. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying the psalmist is advocating for ideas in which we, they think that every culture's view of God is correct. No, I don't believe that. I don't think different contradictory ideas of God can be true. And I, and I don't think the psalmist is agreeing with the popular worldview that kind of everybody has a bit of truth, but no one has any uh, real access to truth. I don't think the psalmist is saying here that all religions are just blind people touching a part of an elephant, if you've heard that thing. Rather, I think what the psalmist is doing here is reminding us that we, individual people living here in Pacifica or the Bay Area, you and me, we don't have a monopoly on experience with God. We, we don't have, we're not the only ones that have had a relationship with him. It's, what's happening here isn't to affirm uh, a person that thinks everyone is right, but to confront an individualist who thinks that only they are right. A lot of times in our suffering, we get really individually focused. We can really think that my experience is, is the only experience and my thinking is the only experience that, that matters. And God is reminding us in the psalm that he is the God of all nations. Not an affirmation of what every nation does or believes. Right? It says, keep watching the nations, let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Rather, the psalmist reminds us that God is bigger than any of us. That he is bigger than our suffering and trials. That's whether those are individual or whether those are national trials that God is and has been sovereign over every nation, over every trial that has ever been faced. Some of, I, I need to remember that today, you know, as I think about various challenges we face personally or as a, as a country, that God is sovereign over everything that's ever existed. He's not stressed out in heaven 
about social issues in America or political issues. Or He's not up there stressed out. He's sovereign. He's in control. We need to remember that today. And as the psalm progresses, the focus narrows, and the psalmist begins to describe how God has been faithfully specific, faithful specifically to the people of Israel. While God reminds us that he's the God of the whole world, he also wants us to remember that God has specifically been faithful to his people, in this case, Israel. The psalmist remembers that God, verse 6, he turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him. The psalmist, he's recounting how after 400 years of slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt, God rescued the Israelites. He brought them out of Egypt into a promised land to begin this new nation for themselves. And during this rescue, God, he uses Moses uh, to bring the Hebrews to the edge of the Red Sea. And the armies of the Egyptian Pharaoh were closing in on them. And then God, he shows up. Maybe you're familiar with the story, but sometimes we forget the details during the, during the trial, during the season. I want to read some of the details here. The Israelites had actually lost their confidence in God. They were in a season of hardship and difficulty. They'd lost their faith in God. They're frustrated with Moses. They waver in their faith. They fail to remember so I want to read to you Exodus 10, 14, or 10, or 10, Exodus 14, 10 through 18. Uh, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. Exodus 14, 10 through 18, describing the state of uh, the Israelites in this season. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you have seen today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. The people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. The psalmist reminds the original Jewish audience of their past and us today that there have been other times in which they were afraid. There have been other times in which they lost faith. And yet did they remember how God showed up? They remember that God did not abandon them, that he showed up and he rescued them. Do you have a story like that that you can remember? And you thought of the thing you thought of in your life. If it was a past story, can you look back in that time? Can you remember the time that God showed up and rescued you? Maybe a marriage that was saved, a time of grief that is now healed, a depression that has endured, a body that was broken that's been restored. Do you have stories in which you can see God's faithfulness in your past? It's good to remember them. Maybe in your present season of trial, it'd be good to remember a past time in which God showed up. If you're like right in the middle of it, you're like, yeah, that sounds nice, but he's not showing up right now, it's good to look back and see if he showed up in the past. Maybe the present will be a time that you look back on in the future and you'll be encouraged by. Maybe what you are enduring today will be the foundation of your encouragement into the future. I really believe that. Remembering reminds us of what's possible right now. And Psalm 66 teaches us that when we face trials and hardship, we need to remember God's faithfulness in our stories and the stories of those around us. So number three, the third thing we need to do when we face hardship, number three is believe. Believe. Look at verses 10 through 12 for this. 
God has rescued the people time and time again. He has been faithful to defeat God's enemies, the people's enemies, and to save them from death and defeat. But when we come to these verses in verses uh, 10 through 12, uh, which I said are kind of the heart of this psalm, the psalmist describes God's actions a little bit differently. Uh, This is, again, verses 10 through 12. God isn't just described as the people's rescuer, and this is the hardest part of the psalm. He's actually in some way behind some of their trials. Let me read it again. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You have brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. This is a difficult text and idea to understand, and this isn't the sermon to parse out all the different ways in which God's sovereignty and control exists and how free will still is happening. Um, The Bible describes the world as being totally under God's control and yet at the same time broken by rebellion and sin. And these are really important issues, and I think they're really sufficient answers. Uh, But what I really want to highlight this morning is the psalmist is still able to praise God even while he maintains that God is fully in control during his trial and hardships. Many of us seem to get stuck and seem to think that if God is good, and if something bad happens, then he must not be in control, right? God's good, something bad happens to me, God must not be up there, and he must not be in control. Or we think God's control, something bad happens, and he must not be good. He's just letting crappy stuff happen to us. But the psalmist doesn't seem to get stuck on either of those two conclusions. And here's my guess why. Uh, The psalmist views his circumstances and his difficulties as things used by God for his own benefit and refinement. He's sort of doing an end around the question of of why and are you good or are you in control and saying, I can see how you could use this circumstance for my benefit. And that's a really hard thing to do uh, when when we're in a challenging circumstance. I love how Augustine, he's a fourth century African scholar, he commented on this. He said this, You have not fired us like hay, but like silver. By applying to us fire, you have not turned us into ashes. You have washed off our uncleanliness. You brought us into the net, not that we might be caught and die, but that we might be tried and delivered from it. You laid a crushing burden on our backs, for in our pride we had lifted ourselves up, but we were bowed down. to believe that in the middle of a trial. And, uh, and, I, and after the psalmist had endured this trial, he looks back and he sees how God has used or redeemed his trial and he was refined through it. And I think the question for us today in the middle of something is, do you believe that God is powerful enough to use whatever you are going through to ultimately refine and benefit you? Do you believe that? 
How about using this present trial to benefit not just you, but someone else? Sometimes I think God allows us to go through difficult things, not so that we might be the beneficiary, but that someone else might be the beneficiary of, what, of that circumstance. Is it possible that God is allowing, even causing, and I use that word very cautiously, this difficulty in your life for your greater good, for the greater good you can do for someone else? Do you believe that that's possible? Psalm 66 teaches that we must believe that God can redeem or use any hardship for our own good and for the good of others. It's a step of belief that we have. That's why it's in here. Number three, believe. The fourth thing we need to do when we face hardship and suffering is obey. Obey. And we're going to look at verse 13 through 15 for that. When we face hardships and trials, we must obey. Uh, psalm 66 continues the focus of the psalm continues to be more personal. It's going from that kind of universal to the national to the personal. And beginning in verse 13, which is through the end of the psalm, the psalmist now uses personal pronouns. The text is now their own story. It goes from the nations to Israel to now I. Let me read verses 13 through 15. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered, and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fatted animals. With the smoke of the sacrifice of rams, I will make an offering of bulls and goats. The psalmist is reflecting on his life after this hardship, and he's committing to a life of sacrificial obedience. He will follow through on the things he vowed to do when he was in trouble. He will obey the statutes that God called the Israelites to do in the Old Testament. He will give back sacrificially to God because what of God because what have God, God had done for him. And I think it's so easy for us when we're in a season of difficulty or trial to stop obeying God. When things are difficult or even when the trial's over, right? When things are difficult, we feel uh, overwhelmed, we might feel burdened, and so maybe we tell ourselves we're entitled to some kind of disobedience. Things are so hard right now, just get off my back, God, let me do what I want to do here. Uh, often that looks like indulgence, Doing or overdoing something we know is wrong or maybe isn't best. Some of us are prone to sin like that when we face hardships. And others of us, we might be the opposite, right? We don't become indulgent when we face hardship. We become stingy. We tell ourselves, with everything I'm going through, everything I've gone through, I can't do anymore. I don't need to be patient. I don't need to forgive. I don't need to serve. I don't need to be generous. But the psalmist gives us a third path, obedience. The one... Uh, and one of the ways that we can endure and trial and, and, and thrive in the middle is just by simple obedience. So I remember one time I was going through a really hard thing, and my father-in-law's wise pastor said to me, just do the basic stuff. Just keep doing the basic stuff. Love your wife. Love your family. Read the Bible. Just make sure you're doing the basics. I think one of the things, ways we can thrive in those seasons is just to do the basics. We do when we do what God tells us to do, and we live the life Jesus modeled for us, and we reject the temptation to indulgence or the temptation to stingy. And Psalm 66, it teaches us that we should remain obedient during and after our season of hardship and trial. Okay, lastly, point five. If the lights stay on. It says to tell someone. To tell someone. The last thing we should do in response to hardship and difficulty is tell someone. Verses 16 through 19. The final call from Psalm 66 is that we are supposed to share our experience with others. It says this. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. 
I cried to him with my mouth. High praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. I believe this is true both during and after our trials. We need to share with others during our trials because we need people to be praying with us. We need to hear their stories. We need to be reminded. Uh, we need to be uh, people to listen, to empathize with us. We need to be reminded of the struggles of others. We need to be reminded that we're not the only ones who are facing hardship. Really clearly, none of us are meant to struggle in isolation. <clears throat> I think it's what many of us choose to do. Uh, maybe it's pride, maybe it's fear, maybe it's a lack of vulnerability. Um, but I want to be clear, I don't think anyone gets better in isolation. There's this dynamic that I've noticed, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a you know, super seasoned pastor, but I've got 15 years of experience, that happens when people are going through a hard time. I've seen this a lot. First, people, they start to feel overwhelmed, and so they begin to um, have this feeling that they need to pull back from relationships in order to take care of themselves. And all of that makes sense at first, right? We're like, yeah, I get it. Like, you need to, you know, take care of yourself. It sounds really good. And so people give them distance. And I'm not asking, like, productivity. I'm talking relationship. I can understand that from, like, a work standpoint. They start to pull back from relationship. And people go, I understand. I get it. I want to give you your distance. If they're involved in a church, they begin to pull back. They drop out of their small group. They stop serving. They stop attending church. They stop attending frequently. They pull back from friends and relationships to take care of themselves. And this is what I've noticed again and again, that when we do this, we don't get better. We grow stagnant, we spiral. Uh, in isolation, our own problems grow. And the thing that's interesting is we cut ourselves off from the very mechanism, Christian community, that God has given us to help us through our trial. And, and honestly, I think that's sort of like a, a way that Satan uses hardship. That God has given us this gift, which is at times a burden of relationship and community. And in trial and suffering, we begin to cut ourselves off from that by isolation. And it's not until we re-engage with others that we begin to experience a breakthrough. Friends, we need community. We need people to share our struggles with, to hear their struggles. We need people to bear our burdens alongside, and we need to bear their burdens. I want to say again, this is something different than friendship. Most people hear community, they think friendship. They think, oh, I need friends. And in the church, I can't promise you friends. I, you know, the people you meet here may never be your friends. But they might be something much more than that. They might be a Christian community. They might be gospel co-laborers. They might be relationships with believers in which we can share honestly with who we are and we can be supported and support one another in our faith. And I know as a church that COSAD is doing this, trying to stimulate these kind of relationships, not just through things like Sunday mornings, but through small groups, through social activities, through things like this men's retreat, service opportunities, and... Um, but the goal of that is not just to fill your calendar, but to create the kind of relationships that, that serve you and that, that allow you to serve one another. And I know that can be so difficult when we're facing hardship, but I would just encourage you, in the middle of it, it's almost like um, you can think of this from a health perspective, too. When you're going through a hard time, people start exercising. They stop exercising. I'm, I'm, so I'm not feeling good. It's like, well, just do whatever you can. Try to keep things going, because when you stop doing these things, this is when things get hard. So if you're in the middle of a hard thing, Press into relationship, not away from it. Lastly, uh, we need to tell people about our, our, our challenges. We need to share and testify how God has brought us through suffering. That's why the psalmist is writing the psalm. Literally, it's the author sharing their story with us. And he calls us to go and do the same. 
This can happen again inside and outside of the church. We can testify and encourage other believers. We can testify to people who don't yet know. They might be drawn to faith. They might be helped by God in their truest time of struggle and, and, and hardship. And you don't have to have all the answers when you tell someone about your story, how God's working in your life, but each of us has a story of God's faithfulness in our lives. And I want to encourage you to tell somebody your story. And for the Christian, as you share that story, the center of that story is Jesus, right? That's why Christianity is called Christianity and not Christianism. Have you ever noticed that? It's the following of a person. It's not a philosophy or a set of beliefs. And so ultimately for the Christian, which is a little bit different, you know, the Psalms didn't have Jesus yet, this Psalm teaches us that Jesus is who we would sing about. So when we're in church, the reason we do worship is to remind us about Jesus, Jesus in worship. And Jesus is who we remember, right? That's why I do communion. Talking about singing to Jesus, remembering Jesus in communion, we're going to do that a bit. Jesus is who we believe in, that's why I do baptism. You see a baptism, you take a confession of faith about Jesus. Jesus is who we obey. That's why we have these moments of offering or service opportunity. It's a chance for obedience. And lastly, Jesus is who we tell people about. That's what we're doing when we're preaching. So those, those five things we mentioned are also five things we do in a service here. It's why we do church. And it's Jesus' death and resurrection that ultimately make hardship possible. They make our hardship bearable, bearing possible. Uh, and I really believe that there's no greater answer to whatever trial you're facing than coming into a real relationship with Jesus. And there's a very unique reason why. That may just sound like a church answer. Hey, you're going through a hard time. Jesus is going to help. Let me explain how Jesus helps Augustine, again, the, the African uh, um, pastor uh, in the 4th century, he says this, I, I love this statement. He said, God had one son on earth without sin, but never a son without suffering. God had one son on earth without sin, but basically no sons without suffering. This is the hope of the gospel. Both that Jesus lived a life that we couldn't and we didn't and we haven't lived a life free from sin, and yet that he understands our suffering because he lived a fully human life with all of its struggles, with temptations and trials, and yet he endured. We have the hope and we have the empathy together in Jesus. That's why he is the person that's so helpful in the middle of trial. So uh, Hebrews 10, verses 14 through 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. When you think of that circumstance in which you were struggling, when you closed your eyes, when you think of that struggle or trial you're facing right now, I want you to think of Jesus in your shoes. How would Jesus act in these moments? How would he act towards those around him? How would Jesus believe? How would Jesus feel? Yes, he would feel tempted. Yes, he would feel tried but he would do things slightly differently. We are called to emulate that Jesus. And this morning, we, each of us have the opportunity to cry out for mercy to, to this great high priest, to find grace in our time of need. And so if you're a follower of Jesus or not, I'm going to cry out to Jesus for the first time. It is Jesus who allows us to conclude what the Psalms concludes at the very end of Psalm 66, verse 20. It says this, Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer." or removed his steadfast love from me. Jesus is the means for us to be able to say that great end. Let's pray and we'll take communion together. Father God, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful for your truth. I'm grateful that you um, 
speak to us in the midst of our hardship. You speak through your word, but you've spoken most clearly and most profoundly in the example and the person of Jesus Christ. God, that you have given us someone to emulate that entirely understands us, that understands intimately our fears and our frustrations and our angers and our questions and our confusing